You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the podcast. We are going to ask a time-old uh, time question, what if? We are going to speak with Jeff Nussbaum on his recently published book, Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. Jeff was a senior speechwriter for President Joe Biden. Prior to that, he was a partner at West Wing Writers, America's premier strategy and speechwriting shop. He led or co-led speechwriting the last four Democratic conventions. As a co-founder of the Humor Cabinet, Nesbaum has also worked on humor speeches for elected officials and executives and has served as a creative consultant for the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. He is our first graduate of Brown University, I will note, uh, to kind of keep our scoreboard of colleges. And Jeff <laughs> also uh, co-authored Had Enough with James Carville that was published back in 2003. Um, Jeff, thank you for joining me today. So good to be here. I didn't know we had a college scoreboard. I don't know that Brown would be happy to claim me, but I'm happy to claim them. <laughs> well, technically speaking, we didn't have a scoreboard until I just said that. So we'll have to keep a kind of kind of <laughs> keep a, a, a totem, if you will, of uh, of what goes on. Um, so I, I I pulled out a quote from your book because I I think this is kind of like the defining line of the opening of your book and kind of teaches people what you're getting at. You, you said, "quote In the aggregate, you're speaking to this book. You say in the aggregate." They provide an alternate history of the key 20th and 21st century events. Okay, I, I love this quote because it's an alternate, you know, history. It, it's it's not what we ended up seeing. Um, I mentioned Charlie Munger in my opening, and he says to invert, always invert. Your book Undelivered asks us to stop and think about the alternative histories for a moment, thus invert our thinking. Have you always been interested in the other options of life? In other words, are, do you, are you kind of like Uncle Rico, you know, from Napoleon Dynamite saying, you know, if Coach had put me in um, in the fourth quarter? Uh, <laughs> and, and kind of I'm asking it to understand what inspired you to write this book. Yeah, two, well, two things. First of all, I love that, that Munger idea of invert. Um, and indeed, uh, one of my favorite chapters, and this is one of the more known speeches in the book, is Eisenhower wrote a speech apologizing for the D-Day failure. So one of his leadership tools was he always had to imagine failure, right? He always inverted his thinking before he ordered troops into an engagement in battle. And so I, I just love that he thought about what failure would look like and then asked himself, is, is this failure worth the plan I've put together in the hopes of success? So, um, so I love that invert idea. For, for me, this book um, was a chance to share with the world my own strange obsession, which began uh, on election night in 2000. I was a kid speechwriter for Al Gore. Um, many of your listeners will remember that uh, on election night, Florida 
first went to Gore and then it went to Bush and then it was too close to call. And as a result, no speeches were given that night. And I was left holding at one point three speeches Gore had, a victory, a concession, and then a win the electoral college but lose the popular vote, which, which we thought might be one of the outcomes. Uh, at that night, he ended up giving no speech at all. And those speeches, ironically, I lost. Can't find them anywhere. I mean, I went back to the, te- <laughs> I went back to the teleprompter operator from 20 years ago to see if there was something still locked in the system. Nothing. But it set off this, this search to find all these places, not just in politics, war and peace, even pop culture, where events pivoted so quickly and so dramatically at the end that there was a draft speech left giving us a little bit of a look down what an alternate path would have looked like. And you do a good job in your book of either finding those speeches or um, providing a lot of what would have been said in those speeches. Um, And I think it's just great kind of first source uh, research you've done. Um, I also felt, you know, I I enjoy playing poker and, and, um, you know, I I think about some of this as playing cards. Um, I felt like a card player at times reading this where – you know, it's like watching the final table of the World Series of Poker, and like watching it on ESPN, you already know the outcome. Um, the future is unknown. You, you've seen things in your political career, as you already said, that you just you never would have expected. Um, do you apply alternative outcomes in and how you think as a writer? As I mean, obviously you're you're politically involved, so you have to deal in you know less than what you'd want at times. How, how do you use that personally? Well, I lo- I love the way you're coming at these questions, right? Which is that when we watch poker on TV, we know the outcome already, but the players don't. And, and I, I quote um, often, I, I say this sounds almost like former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, where he talked about the known knowns and the unknown unknowns. And, and we think in retrospect, things happened because that's the way they had to happen. Sure. And one of the things this book demonstrates is no, they, they didn't have to happen that way. Right. Only in retrospect, only with perfect hindsight, only with 2020 hindsight, do we say, oh, that seems natural. But at the time, it doesn't. And so to answer the question, yes, in, in politics, in my political life, even even when I've had corporate clients and business clients um, making major product announcements or make, making merger, you know, merger announcements, I am constantly thinking, okay, let's write for the ideal outcome. And indeed, let's try to shape the ideal outcome. But let's also, you know, have our, what's our fallback, not just our fallback positioning, but our fallback messaging. Um, what, what are the other possible outcomes in this moment? And I'll share one that I just, I have not shared in the book. Um, maybe, maybe it'll make its way into volume two. Um, but I was working with a um, audio visual company that was announcing of partnerships with with a couple of the huge tech companies names names you'd recognize and and they were going to be kind of a neutral platform and when each of the big tech companies realized that this was that they were both going to be part of this event they both threatened to back out um, and <laughs> scuttle the deal and so we had basically like a oh my god the deal's been scuttled speech and uh look at what we've been able to achieve speech so it's not just politics where you want to make sure you're prepared for, for multiple outcomes. So you start the book out uh, in the first chapter with the 1963 March on Washington. Um, we, we, we all know and treasure Martin Luther King's words in his message of I Have a Dream, um, but this chapter is really about John Lewis, who also spoke at the march. Um, can you give our listeners some of the background and build up 
uh, for John Lewis to that moment in time. Yeah, thank you. This, this is I start with this chapter in part because I, I really in, enjoy two things here. One is recognizing um, that John Lewis was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington. He had just become the leader of this group called SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the youth movement, but also the most aggressive wing of the civil rights movement. John Lewis mm-hmm. had been on the, on the Freedom Rides. Uh, a bus he had been on but wasn't on at the time had been firebombed. He actually bravely, before the Freedom Rides started, did like a test ride with one other person. So there was no publicity, no support. Um, he was in danger all the time. So he was really in the fight. And he was a little soft on the idea of, of this March on Washington. He thought that it was too establishment, too corporate. Uh, and he didn't really want to talk there. And the people around him said, like, John, you've got to be a personality. You have to be a face of this movement. You have to speak. And he basically said, "Okay, but if I speak, I'm going to put some sting into it. I don't want this to be a march in Washington. I want it to be a march on Washington. So that's Mm -hmm. the mindset that he that he brought to this march. The context of this is in as we learn our history, we think the march was this shiny, happy. I have a dream moment march. And indeed it was. But at the time, it was really delicate. Uh, the, the, you know, the Washington baseball team canceled their home games. Uh, the National Guard was on high alert. All of the local fire departments had been deputized as police departments. Um, the quarterback of the team that was then known as the Washington Redskins was a National Guardsman. And one reporter saw him with his guard unit and said, you know, that's the most protection I've seen him have all year. And, but, but the city <laughs> was on high alert really, really high alert. And there, and there was other delicate politics going on. For example, the Archbishop Bishop of Washington had agreed to give the invocation. And having this sort of Catholic Archbishop gave Kennedy, President Kennedy, the cover he needed to invite the leaders to the White House. So there's this whole delicate series of things happening. And then Lewis's draft speech leaks. And what has happened is his the folks around him had seen other speakers were giving out their speeches so that the press would cover them more. And so mm-hmm. they put out Lewis's speech, and Lewis's speech was hot. Um, he wanted to say things like, um, we will march through the South, through the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did. We'll pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground. So, well, so, to, uh, so to jump in on that, because, yeah, please. I mean, um, because Sherman was obviously, you know, credited with, you know, taking Atlanta and then, you know, obviously going to the sea, as Lewis mentioned. But I mean, Sherman's name in the South haunted people for decades. I mean, it was a, it was a scared figure. So for Lewis to use that language in certain parts of the country, that's very vivid language. That's very vivid language in the South. And he also had a message for um, political leaders who were ostensibly on the same page with him. You know, he wanted to say, in good conscience, we can't wholeheartedly support the administration's civil rights bill. It's too little and too late. There's not one mm-hmm. thing in the bill that we're, will protect our people from police brutality. So basically, he would want to get up there and say, a pox on both your houses. We need to tear this whole thing <laughs> yeah. down and start over. Yeah. And, and ironically, the line that really set off the, the tension was he basically said, look, people have said, be patience. I want to tell you patience is a dirty and nasty word. And that was the word that was most offensive to that was the line that was most offensive to the Catholic Church. 
that patience is a dirty and nasty word. So what happens is the night before the march, all the organizers basically say, like, John, you got to change your speech. And he's willing to remove the word, you know, he's willing to take out the line on patience. But then the next morning, the morning of the march, they start in on him again. And they're basically telling him, you got to tone it down. You got to change it. You're going to blow everything up. And even Martin Luther King goes up to John Lewis. And this is now backstage at the Lincoln Memorial. And he Mm -hmm. says, John, this doesn't sound like you. And Lewis does not listen to Martin Luther King. He says, yeah, but it sounds like us. It sounds like us. And so Lewis is still unwilling to change. The speaking program is getting ready to get started. People are really, really nervous. And finally, A. Philip Randolph, who's kind of like the the gray eminence of this whole thing, uh, begs him and and says, uh, and this is how Lewis described it. He turned to me and said, John, he looked as if he might cry. We've come this far together. Let us stay together. This was as close to a plea as a man as dignified as he could come. How could I say no? It would be like saying no to Mother Teresa. So Lewis finally cracks and he retreats to the back of the Lincoln Memorial. And one of the things I have in the book uh, and, you, and in the audiobook, it comes in the accompanying material, is I found in the archives this rare photo of John Lewis in the back of the Lincoln Memorial and he's flanked by Jim Foreman and Cortland Cox, who were both his advisors and in this moment almost serving as like bodyguards, um, frantically almost under the arm of Abraham Lincoln reworking his speech, which, which he does. Yeah, because obviously, as you pointed out there, I mean, even people that he politically agreed with, um, he was at odds with because, you know, here's groundbreaking legislation coming to the forefront of American politics and they were afraid he was going to stifle this groundbreaking legislation. In other words, in a way, kind of working against what he wanted, to your, yeah. to your book's point. Exactly. And, and you've, you've flagged a really great point um, because it demonstrates how he changed the speech. So I mentioned a second ago, he said, in good conscience, we cannot support wholeheartedly the administration's civil rights bill. It's too little and too late. He changed it to... It is true that we support the administration's civil rights bill. We support it with great reservation, however, unless Title III is put in this bill. So he changes his claim from this bill is is worthless to I support it, but it needs the following modifications. And I I love this because it's also a demonstration of how things should work in American politics a little bit, right? You have your vision of the perfect. You are rarely... Even in cases where there is as much moral clarity as there was in this case, you're okay. almost never going to get your perfect. So what is your acceptable? And, and that's what Lewis did in this speech. And, and by the way, his speech was still the hottest speech of the day. But in terms of our initial conversation about thinking what might have been, you know, what might have been if Lewis gave the speech he wanted to give? And the thing people were talking about after the march wasn't the dream, but Lewis's nightmare. It, it would have been a different event. Well, and you even add that uh, King's speech had changed uh, from what he originally had intended to write um, to what he walked up to the podium with to then what he also ended up saying, um, which I think is an I- interesting evolution that, you know, as we read in our history books in elementary school, we don't hear, oh, by the way, there was an evolution even during the speech. Indeed. King King's advisors in this case wanted him to give a much tougher speech as well, that they called normalcy never again. 
And Normalcy Never Again remained the official title of the I Have a Dream speech. But basically, they wanted him to speak and say, I know some people are saying we can make some progress on civil rights when we return to normalcy. And they wanted King to go right at that and say, there's, there's going to be no normalcy in this country. This, this change is here for good. And King was kind of okay with it, but like didn't love it. And so he lapsed into, from memory, the I Have a Dream peroration, right? The, that sort of pre-conclusion. Mm-hmm. And this is a speech, I Have a Dream, that he had been giving dozens of times before. Uh, he had been giving it for months and months. And a lot of his advisors kind of smacked their heads and go, went like, oh, man, not this again. And to them, what King gave, the I Have a Dream speech, was almost like a warmed-over greatest hits album, right? Sure. It was a bunch of things King's, King had said before. But I use this also as a communications reminder to people and clients, which is sometimes it is the thousandth time you say the exact same thing that people finally, finally hear it. Correct. And, and who doesn't like singing along to a greatest hits album to add to that, right? Exactly. Um, exactly right. So, so let's, so let's pivot uh, to some of the more I- interesting um, uh, ladies in your book. Um, so Emma, Emma Goldman, um, she was quite the page turner in 1893 in the local papers as, as you teach your readers, um, teach our audience about who she was and kind of what made her such a firecracker. Yeah, so I, I love that you've identified this chapter because one of the things people asked me in this book quite, quite frequently are, you know, have you brought in voices that weren't traditionally heard? And the truth is, right, a lot of the unheard voices weren't heard at all, right? There were no speaker, women speakers at that March on Washington. Emma Goldman was an interesting case. So she was, um, she was an anarchist. Um, you know, she had nicknames like Red Emma, um, you know, political cartoons pictured her as like this larger than life figure hoisting a red flag, urging her followers on to rebellion, even though um, she was barely five feet tall. But she kind of became this avatar of anarchism, um, this avatar of anarchy. And and she and she was arrested in 1893 for using a speech to incite a riot Uh a riot in Union Square, New York, a riot that never actually materialized, but they were worried. And, and she was 25 years old. So kind of young, dynamic, compelling anarchist. She, uh, she spoke Russian and German and Polish. So, so at this time, when there was such tension, um, such division of wealth in society, here she was speaking directly to the working classes and riling them up. And What's interesting to me is today we use the word bomb thrower to describe political figures. Like this was a mm-hmm. chapter in our history where there were literal bomb throwers. Her, sure. her husband at the time, um, you know, tried to assassinate the industrialist Henry Frick. I mean, they, th- th- this was a really fraught time. Like, uh, you know, socioeconomic tensions were becoming political tensions were becoming violence. And, and, and she was at the center of all of it. So was her main, I mean, this is the Gilded Age, okay? To your point, there's a lot of disparity going on from wealth in society. Um, And by the way, it's not dissimilar to today, I would say. Uh, Further, much like today, Jeff, uh, interest rates were very low in the late 19th century. Um, So are we shocked that wealth inequality came with low interest rates is another thing I always kind of think. But was was her main appeal just a pushback to capitalism that was practiced during the Gilded Age? It, it was largely. 
It was largely. Okay. She that she basically wanted to say, "Hey, working classes, rise up and take what's yours." And, and that was actually the language that got her arrested, uh, where she basically said, "Look, you can walk up Fifth Avenue and you see these gilded mansions. Like, if you don't have bread, that's your bread to take." And so that was what was really threatening and scary to people. And she had followers, and she had followers. So, so she is arrested for this. Ironically, and this gets to, and I touch in this chapter on, on gender a little bit, right? Sure. Because she didn't fire the gun in the assassination attempt. Her husband did. Uh, she didn't throw any bombs. Her compatriots did. And yet she's the one who ended up in jail. And there is something in our history, something in our culture, that is more threatened by women's voices sometimes than we are by men's voices. Um, this is, I, I don't have a solution and I don't have deeper, deeper analysis of this, but I, in researching the book, it's something that I felt I really needed to identify because she's the one who ended up in jail. And the undelivered speech of hers is at her sentencing. She wanted to speak at her sentencing so much so that her lawyer quit. Her lawyer basically said, look, if, if you speak in your own defense, this isn't going to go well for you. And indeed, New York, again, was on incredibly high alert uh, at the day of her sentencing. Some of the descriptions of the time basically said that the streets looked like they were lined in blue, just a wall of police officers. And the concern was that Emma Goldman, being such a convincing, compelling, dynamic speaker, would speak at her sentencing, and this would incite her followers to rise up again, and it would, A, cause violence in the streets, and B, get her a longer sentence. And ultimately, at the very last minute, she declines to speak. She decides not to speak and mm -hmm. is given a relatively light sentence. She goes to jail for a year. She comes out. She is more popular than ever. And so in a way, holding her tongue in that moment, um, holding her tongue in that moment basically helped her gain even greater popularity. So now what, what I mean, and I, I don't remember off the top of my head in your book, but do you point out why you think she did that? In other words, like she's this firebrand and all of a sudden she has this demure moment where she decides not to be so loud and obnoxious in the, in the public sphere. Do, do you have any you know, reason in, in your research that you walked away with as why she did that? I don't have a great reason. Um, she... It certainly wasn't that she was taking her lawyer's advice. And, and by the way, her speech that, that ultimately got her arrested, um, you know, she said things like, necessity knows no law. You know, the starving man has a right to share his neighbor's bread. Um, so she, you know, again, this idea, take what's yours. In terms of, in terms of not speaking, um, she, there seems to be some evidence that she wanted to... Um, protect her friends, that mm -hmm. her, her friends were going to jump into action if she gave the word and that they would get arrested too. So, so that's as best as I can tell. Gotcha. So let me, I'm going to quote uh, uh, a piece uh, from your book that, that uh, uh, was in her, that was in her writing. Um, I belong to that class of speakers who endeavored to show the working men the real reason of misfortune is the end of the quote. Um, as a speechwriter, if you're analyzing a statement like this, does this read as kinsman or kinswoman 
or master because I, I could see it both ways. I was kind of like walking away thinking about her saying these things. She's not saying I am you. She's saying like God put me here to lead you. <laughs> and, and there's a big distinction between those two things. Yeah, I never thought about it in that way. But, but now that you, you call it out, I think there are two things at play here. And I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. The kinswoman aspect of this is that she spoke the languages. In fact, this was a big issue in her trial, which is that one of the police officers who was in plain clothes, who basically was, was the one testifying to what she actually said, spoke some German, but not a ton of German. But she, sure. basically, she basically went from language to language to language in these speeches. And even her own account of her words kind of differs from other accounts of her words, just because of translation issues. So in the sense that all of these people, all of these various ethnic workers saw in her someone who spoke, literally spoke their language, she was kin in that way. In how she was able to rally them, she was, she was master. Uh, but I do think, I think the, the idea of being able to speak to someone in their own language in a way that felt authentic to them certainly made her kin even as she elevated herself above. Sure. Um, as you, you talk about the German, uh, I'm having flashbacks of watching 1883 with my wife, watching German immigrants come across uh, the Oregon Trail. Um, she ended her undelivered speech that, that uh, you have in your book with anarchy effectively as like the natural order in her mind. How do you think the public in New York would have taken this? In other words, like some of her followers would have obviously been interested in it because they were interested in her, to your point what would the public have taken anarchy as kind of like the final say in 1893 in New York City? It's funny. I also got hung up on that as the last line of her speech because I just thought that that's not really... When we think about effective speech making, you know, we think about presenting a vision of the world as it could be as a way to rally people and then a call to action, right? And her mm -hmm. call to action is basically like anarchy exclamation point. And maybe it's my own politics. Maybe it's everyone's politics. Like, I don't, I still don't quite understand what that means. I don't understand what sure. a vision of anarchy really means, right? I actually understand what a vision of socialism means. I have issues with it, but I understand what it means. And so I struggled with that because I didn't, I don't quite get what a vision of anarchy is. And okay. so, so to me, I don't know how that would have sounded to folks except, th except threatening. Right. Because it's not the because it sounds like the chaos that everyone feared. Right. It sounds like sure. the natural conclusion of the chaos where basically she has said, if you don't have bread, your neighbor's bread is yours. You know, if you, if you don't have opportunity, like take it by force. So so I think it would have been threatening, but I don't quite, but it would have been a sort of a nebulous threat. Sure. So later in her life, she you point out, um, which I didn't know, she obviously founded the ACLU. Um, you know, she went on to do other things in this realm of, of speech giving and policy. Um, and um, so you mentioned a speech that she gave in St. Louis uh, later in her life. Um, she ends that speech kind of back to this whole, like, how do you end your speech idea? She ends that speech with uh, the term, quote, freedom from coercion, end quote, instead. So here's my question. I, 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 is this just great speech writing or spin, if you will, to trade those terms? Or is it a better sounding anarchy is my, one of my questions I had for myself. 
Yeah. So she didn't found the ACLU, but she basically one of the people in the audience that day in St. Louis became a founder of the ACLU. Okay. So, so, but so, um, so I, in a way that's part of my answer to your question, right? Has she basically rebranded anarchy as freedom from coercion in her own mind? Mm -hmm. And indeed it was that speech that inspired the creation of the ACLU because this, this, this young guy out there who's watching it basically understand, this is Roger Baldwin, he hears sure. her speak in St. Louis, and he, he gets it, right? He gets, oh, freedom from coercion means we're going to protect you from government overreach. And the ACLU, as we all know, protects some people we love and some people we don't love, but they're pretty sure. consistent that they're protecting people from being coerced by the government. So, sure. I, so I think the proof is almost in the pudding, right? Which is that she says freedom co from coercion, this guy, Roger Baldwin, hears it and he and he and he immediately understands what that means. And he starts an organization that that protects people in that way and, and continues to do so. So sure. I think she had sort of morphed her anarchy into something that was both a little more understandable and and a little more actionable. And, and it and it sure. and also it, in her life, right, she went from sort of economic injustice to reproductive rights and freedoms, you know, and, and a whole host of other issues that fall under that rubric. Sure. Well, and she obviously recognized that using the word freedom in a line to close out your speech uh, to get your point across in America is a lot better than anarchy. Um, so that's exa so that's exactly right. Like, right, freedom is American, anarchy is un-American. Correct. So, so to pivot, Helen Keller runs into Emma Goldman, is inspired by her. Um, you know, we all learn about Helen Keller um, and and what uh, you know what she overcame as a as a young girl, um, but she wanted to break out of that mold. And we don't really hear about the Helen Keller later, if you will. And I think your book does a wonderful job of adding history to what we know as as kind of children growing up. Um, you point out that she runs into Mark Twain, who helps raise some money for her among some of his wealthy friends. Um, as you and I were talking about before we started uh, recording the podcast, I love that you had Twain in here. I'm a Mark Twain junkie. Um, I, I can't help but think he's maybe one of the greatest icons of American history so far. Um, so I appreciate you having him in there. Um, but teach us about where she wanted to get after kind of this childhood stardom tied to overcoming her disability. That's right. So she was a wildly well-known person, thanks in large part to Mark Twain, who, right, we were talking earlier, Mark Twain shows up everywhere in American history throughout yeah. his life. Uh, always with interesting people, always with interesting things to say. He was one of her earliest champions. And so she became uh, this very, very well-known figure for her inspirational story of overcoming. The book, The Miracle Worker, which was a play and a movie. People loved the story of this young girl overcoming. But the thing about young girls is they grow up. And the thing about Helen Keller is she, not only did she learn to talk, but she realized she had something to say. Sure. And so later in her life, she begins speaking about women's suffrage and reproductive rights. And even a little bit, because she reads Emma Goldman's speeches, um, even a little bit about anarchy and socialism. And all of a sudden, this Helen Keller that everyone loved and thought was a cute child who they symbolically patted on the head, people start to say, who's controlling her? Who's pulling her strings? She can't really think these things, but indeed she did. And so in the book, 
I have the speech she wanted to give at a march on Washington shortly after the election of President Wilson, mm-hmm. arguing for women's suffrage. And what happened at this march, it, it was supposed to be a, a big, glorious suffrage parade, 5,000 marchers, you know, lots of floats, women on white horses. And it was set upon by about a half million drunk, angry men, right? This is yeah. like a, the, the, a pro, sort of proto, proto-MAGA crowd, sets <laughs> on the parade, um, breaks it up, really ugly scenes, throwing lit cigarettes at the women, dumping drinks on them. You know, the police won't step in and help. They won't intervene. In fact, it's, it's basically like a group of Boy Scouts that mm-hmm. ultimately helps protect the women. And they were so flustered, so flustered by these attacks that, that uh, Helen Keller doesn't feel safe or comfortable speaking that night. And, and so she's denied the opportunity to give her speech, which is about women's suffrage. It's about women's liberation. You know, she talks about the dawning of a new light, uh, a new day where there shall be no woman enslaved, no child robbed of the sweet joy of childhood and the war of daily bread. All earthly opposition cannot stay our onward march. So it, it would have been sort of powerful and beautiful, and she was denied the chance to give it. Yeah, and, and to your point, we, we just don't hear the history of you know, they, when we study history, we get like a little snippet or a soundbite of Helen Keller versus, you know, that like you point out in your book that she calls herself an outright socialist. Um, and, and what she sought to f- uh, fight for, we just don't tend to hear about. Um, so at the end of that part of your book, um, that chapter, you go to Aristotle. And I love this, just so you know. I, this is, someone said, hey, Cole, you know, what's this podcast about? This is about worldly wisdom. This is about liberal arts. And you start quoting Aristotle. And so I have to ask you this question. Um, you refer to his treatise on speech to explain the mental strings that can be pulled in speech or speech writing. What, what are those three strings and why are they so important? Sure, I'll get to that. And one thing I just want to close, close on, on Keller by saying, she was also funny and cheeky. And so in her speeches, you know, one of her arguments for women's suffrage was when women vote, men will no longer be compelled to guess at their desires and guess wrong. So, you know, like, she's like, she had a personality. She had some spark to her. So um, going to Aristotle, yeah. So part of why Aristotle wrote rhetoric on rhetoric is that it was, speech was kind of considered almost a version of, of, of dark magic. Imagine that mm-hmm. just through your words, you could get someone to change their mind or get someone to march into battle, right? This word, these words almost seem magical. And so Aristotle wanted to set out almost a definition of what strings are being pulled because he thought that the antidote to that dark magic was understanding what was happening in your brain. And this is where we start to get the ideas of logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos, for those who have learned some of this, is is logic, right? Someone could make an appeal to logic. Pathos is an appeal to emotion, and it is by far the most powerful uh, tool in speech making. And, and the idea is that just that we like to think that we are thinking creatures with feelings, but there's lots of science behind this, lots of evidence that, that we're really feeling creatures who occasionally think we, we just, mm-hmm. you know, appeals to fear, appeals to emotion, very, very powerful. Ethos is the one that people often misconstrue because they basically say, well, that must be ethics, but it's really characterization. In other words, how can I show through my speech 
that I am a uh, a good messenger, someone to be listened to, someone someone trustworthy or likable, and that's really important, especially in politics. It's about, but it's about connecting with the audience. So those were the three main strings that Aristotle identified that speeches and speechmakers pull when they are trying to uh, connect with you or manipulate you. So we're going to jump back into uh, the 20th century for the, for the remainder of uh, your book. Um, I was 10 years old when Richard Nixon died in 1994. Um, I, I'll never forget that. I think it was the first presidential funeral I ever saw on TV um, that I can remember at least. Um, uh, everyone knows about Watergate, but you bring to light something that is not often you know, thought about, talked about, discussed, debated, et cetera. Um, he, he actually planned a fight. Um, first, explain from your book the people involved in that speechwriting process up to his decision, because I think their own feelings and emotions on this were just as critical to the decision itself. Yes. Yeah, so Nixon, you know, in the depths of Watergate, is basically in a bind. Um, he knows that there are sort of incriminating evidence, incriminating tapes, and and he knows that he's in trouble. And he's trying to figure out, can, can I fight or, or am I going to have to resign office? And the key figure in this chapter is, is someone who's less well-known, um, and it's Ray Price, who was one of Nixon's longtime speechwriters. Nixon had other wonderful writers throughout his career, you know, people like William Sapphire and others. Uh, but Ray Price really did a nice job of channeling Nixon. And I'll take one further step back way earlier into Nixon's career um, to talk about a speech called the Checkers speech, which I do in this chapter. Mm -hmm. The Checkers speech was Nixon was in, in trouble um, earlier in his career. There was a sort of a political slush fund that would be, I'm sure, basically entirely legal and not even noticed today. Um, but but at the time, it threatened that he would get kicked off the ticket with Eisenhower. And so he appealed directly to the American people, he gave a speech directly to the American people that was later described as almost a financial striptease where he basically said, this is how much money I have. This is how much I've made. And, and I haven't done anything wrong. And it's called the checker speech because he says, oh, but there is one gift we got that we're not going to return. And it's this little dog named Checkers. The kids love him and, and we're not giving him back. And, <laughs> and so it really like it resonated in a way that people did not expect it would resonate. After he gave the speech, Nixon thought like I really screwed it up because I basically said Nixon basically said he took the decision out of Eisenhower's hands. He said, if you think I should, now having heard me, if you think I should stay on the ticket, you should say so. But he forgot to give the Republican National Committee's address, and he was very angry at himself. Despite this, the speech was so convincing that hundreds of thousands of letters poured into the Republican National Committee, and, and they said, basically, keep Nixon on the ticket. And there's so many interesting things we can chart back to this speech, the beginning of, of politicians not trying to appear above the people they represented, but saying, I'm one of you. The beginning of grievance policy, politics, where you basically say, this is how much I've got. Like, I, I don't have a lot. I didn't, you know, like sort of, I'm the one who's being wronged here. Anyway, it was all very, very effective. So when Nixon is now in trouble in Watergate, he's, he's thinking a little bit, do I, can I pull this rabbit out of my hat again? Can I do something like Checkers, the Checkers speech, that just explains what has happened and, and, and why it has happened. And if I can do it, maybe I can, maybe I can 
stay in office. And so that's what he and his chief of staff at the time basically asked Ray Price to do. Well, and I mean, it's almost like the great Houdini. Once you get yourself out a couple times, maybe you can keep on doing it. Um, and, and also, I, I, I want to go back to the I, I pulled a quote from your book because I just I this checkers like, again, you know, I'm your classic millennial, Jeff. I'm, I'm 38 years old. I don't even know what the checker speech is until I read your book. And uh, the quote you have from your book, um, Dick Nixon stripped himself naked for all the world to see. And he brought the missus and, and kids and the dog and his war record into the act, end quote. Um, and now and now. I think this is incredibly interesting because, you know, you're trying to make sense of what's going on. You're using what the person's done in the past um, to understand what they might do currently in this, you know, what what is seen at that time as an unknown future. And you tell a really interesting story in this when you were working for Tom Daschle um, post 9-11. And I love this little story you tell because I think it's a great way of understanding the oddity of people and the decisions they make. Um, can you kind of teach us about that post 9-11 story that you tell of, 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 uh, of Tom. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, one of the things I say when I talk about this book is I, I'm actually not a historian. May, maybe I sound like one on this podcast. Maybe I don't, but I'm not a historian. I'm not a journalist, but this, this book allowed me to do both in terms of recreating the history. But what I tried to bring to these undelivered speeches is a little bit of the context and the look behind the curtain on the actual process. And as you say, kind of the oddity of being a speechwriter, of what you're going through when you're asked to put these things together. And in this case, I shared the story of my time with Tom Daschle, who I admire tremendously and was an incredible mentor to me. And I talk about what happens when a speechwriter has to write something or is asked to write something that they don't fully agree with. Mm -hmm. And this is a case where Price thinks Nixon should resign, thinks he can't fight this, shouldn't fight this, it'll be bad for the country. And he does it anyway. He writes his best version of, of that draft. When I worked for Daschle, uh, and I think this is a story you're referring to, after September 11th, one of the yep. bills being proposed was that pilots should be allowed to have guns in the cockpit. And mm -hmm. uh, Tom Daschle was a pilot. He had been in the Air National Guard. And I, I asked him about the bill, and he said, no, this is ridiculous. When you're flying a plane, if there's something going on in the plane, your only job is to get the plane safely to the ground. You don't want to be a cowboy mm -hmm. up there. Said, so we're yeah. against it? No, we're for it. And, and I was just thinking, like, how can this be? This just isn't a good decision. It's not good policy. And I talked to James Carville, who was a mentor of mine, another mentor of mine. And he basically said, look, is it, you know, do you want to work for someone you agree with 100% of the time, except nothing you write for them will ever be heard because they haven't won election to anything? Or do you want to work for someone you agree with 85% of the time who can actually get 51% of the vote? Mm -hmm. And this was a case where Daschle was able to get 51% of the vote several times in a very conservative state where a lot of people mm -hmm. have guns. And so sure, this was sure. the vote he had to take. Now, as a legislative leader, he, he added some amendments to the bill um, he, you know, got it so that pilots would have to be relicensed all the time for, for, their, for their gunsmanship. And, and the end sure. result is that basically very few pilots, if any, are carrying guns in the cockpit. But in that moment, I sort of felt like speechwriters often feel, which is like, I am a lawyer 
who could argue both sides of the case. But unlike a lawyer, you don't have the right to my services, right? It, it's just a question of, do I feel that doing this one thing that I don't agree with will help advance a larger agenda that I do agree with? Mm-hmm. And, and this is one of the challenges for, for writers. And there's another thing that happens that I haven't really talked about in the book and that Price realizes with Nixon is sometimes it's not until you see the decision you want to make in writing on paper and envision yourself saying it that you realize it's just not workable. I had a colleague in the White House who used to say, sometimes our job is to just make the idea smooth enough so that it can roll out into the middle of the road where someone else can run it over. Um, you know, <laughs> that, right? Like that, that, um, that seeing the non-resignation speech would help convince Nixon that he had to resign. Well, and, and the, the, the speech is interesting. The, the line I pulled out of the speech that made me think of your Aristotle comment um, perfectly, um, quote, if I did believe I had committed such an act, I would have resigned long ago, end quote. Yeah. In other words, <laughs> is this a perfect use of logic to say, if I did that, I wouldn't even be here? <laughs> it's, it is. It's a perfect use of logic or a perfect kind of obfuscation of logic. The, the other thing when it comes to persuasion, it's very, very hard to persuade people, especially in this time where everyone's so polarized. But mm-hmm. the, the, one of the things that we know is helpful to persuade people is to concede sometimes that the other point has, a, has, a, has, a, has something right or that, mm-hmm. could, you know, concede a point to the other side. And in this speech, he also says, I also want to tell you about one new piece of evidence I've discovered, which I recognize will not be helpful to my case. So, so the other thing Nixon thought about doing was, I'm going to share some stuff that makes the case against me to show how confident I am that there's a good case for me, that I'll, I'll even help unearth some of the stuff that goes against me. So again, <laughs> persuasion, logic, all of it. The other funny thing about this Nixon non-resignation speech is the resignation speech and the non-resignation speech do have some elements in common. And they really revolve around the idea of continuity that America has had a president killed in JFK, had a president basically resign or choose not to run for reelection in Lyndon Johnson. And so for the sake of continuity, I should stay in office. And then when he resigns, he basically says, for the sake of continuity, I should not stay in office. So mm-hmm. he had a justification that was in search of a conclusion. Sure. Um, so the next, the next chapter I want to talk about is, I, and I mentioned this beforehand, I think it's my favorite chapter of your book. Um, I think it deals in such a messy part of American history that people my age just, we were, we were never subject to and never had to see up close, um, which is your, your chapter on the Boston public schools and Mayor Kevin White. Um, uh, you got to remember too, contextually, Richard Nixon had resigned a little more than a, a month, a, a little more than a year prior, or a month prior in 1974. He, I think it was August he, re, he had resigned. This is happening in September. Um, we were in a bear market in the stock market with inflation hitting heights that we'd never seen in the prior five years. Um, and then in Boston, those weren't really the issues on September 16th of 74. Uh, remind or educate our listeners what was the issue at hand for Boston? It's Mayor Kevin White. Right. And and this goes to another Bostonian's famous saying, which is that all politics are local. And right. so in that political and economic context, Boston has another issue, 
which is that a judge has ordered Boston to desegregate its schools. And because of a prior Supreme Court ruling, the way to desegregate Boston schools has to be a solution within Boston. In other words, you can't bus kids out to the suburbs. You can't bus kids into the city. It has to happen in Boston. And so the judge issues this order and then puts in place a plan that basically buses kids from from uh, homogeneous, ethnically, racially homogeneous areas mm-hmm. to other homogeneous areas in order to make them more diverse. And this results in a system where kids from Roxbury, which is predominantly black, are bused to South Boston, which is predominantly white. And these are two of the most cloistered enclaves in Boston. And it sets off um, a, a really tense, ugly chapter in history where in South Boston, where the black kids were being bussed into, first of all, almost none of the white kids showed up in, in Roxbury. So almost none of the kids went the other way. They, their parents just kept them out of school. The, the, black, the black kids were bussed in and they were met by um, people threw bricks through the windows of buses. The buses need police escorts. People threw bananas at them. They chanted terrible things. I mean, this is why for a long time, you know, athletes of color didn't want to come play for Boston teams. They called it going up sure. south. And I grew sure. up uh, I grew up in a suburb next to where the judge lived. So the judge lived in one of these wealthy suburbs. Um, and and I grew up in the suburb next to it. And there was always this feeling, and, and I'm a little older than you, but a little too young to have actually lived through this cha- episode. But there always <laughs> felt like there was a wound, you know, in the city, a, a racial wound. Sure. And so into this, we have Kevin White, who is a immensely talented, wonderful, progressive politician. When you read the chapter, um, I, I came away admiring him ama- tremendously. He is basically forced to enact an order that he agrees with the goals. He agrees we should be a more integrated city. He, um, but he recognizes, and he says at one point, that if I were the leader of a sovereign state, 80% of Bostonians were against this idea, against this way of busing. And he basically said, if I were the ruler of a sovereign state, I would be deposed for doing what I'm about to do. But mm-hmm. he ultimately, so, so the first week of busing happens. Again, buses are destroyed. Um, the people in Southie, uh, you know, many of the police were, were their own people, their own neighbors. I mean, police officers get trampled. A police officer dies of a heart attack a couple months later, there's a stabbing in the school. I mean, it's, it's really, really ugly. And the mayor is going around, like running on fumes, burning the candle at both ends, going to community meeting to community meeting, begging people to stay calm, begging for people to give it a chance, trying to get the police to respond in a way. But, but doing all of this to enact a judge's order that he doesn't agree with. He just sure. thinks this no, is no. the wrong way of doing it. Yeah. Well, let, let me stop because because I, I and I think you touched on this, but I want to make sure to hit at this because I think it's a really important part of this chapter. If you had to kind of boil it down um, for our listeners, what would you say was kind of the core cohesive argument uh, that that busing was trying to get at? In other words, what what was the issue was trying to get at at the end of the day? The the issue was trying to get at was was that there is that these schools were considered segregated, and there are two legal term ways that segregation. Were, were defined de, de jure, maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong, but segregation by law 
and and de facto, right? Desegregation by kind of custom. And the judge, the ruling was basically saying like, these schools are are basically segregated in in both ways, and they need to be forcibly desegregated. That there's a compel that the state has a compelling interest, the government has an interest in having these schools not be desegregated, not you know, not be segregated. And and the irony, and you I would love you to I'm going to turn this back to you because you wrote a really wonderful piece based off this chapter about good intentions, because the intention here, theoretically, was to improve the educational prospects of the students. Correct. The oh, irony, yeah, which is a great goal and a worthy goal. The irony is that by busing one group of predominantly poor kids to go to school with another group of predominantly poor kids. What are you actually achieving? And and because the evidence is that, you know, diversifying poverty doesn't help many people out of poverty. It's sure. it's diversifying well, well, poverty and wealth that helps. And and you point out in, in the book, Jeff, I, I think you so well point out the dogmatism that was going on on both sides. So on one side, this violence and kind of the brouhaha of uh, what's going on dangerously to the lives of these children um, is being, you know, kind of uh, propagated by the Mullen Gang, which if you don't know who the Mullen Gang is, all you need to go uh, do is watch Black Mass with Johnny Depp, uh, and you can learn about Whitey Bulger and what kind of control he had on, on Boston, uh, you know, uh, poor Boston white, uh, 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 you know, uh, communities. Um, and then on the other side, you have Arthur Garrity, this judge, who has taken all this time to figure out what to do with, with this idea, and gives Mayor White three months to implement it by law. And it is, you're so right on, right? So you've got the gangs. Um, it's really terrifying, right? That John F. Kennedy's childhood home was, was, was firebombed. You know, people are scrawling bus Teddy in reference to Teddy Kennedy graffiti. It's really getting heated. And then you have a judge, and this is, right, sort of in an ivory tower, you know, writing a decision, taking, taking his time, figuring out what works academically, and a mayor who says, well, this ain't going to work on the ground. And, and, and so, White, yeah. I was going to say, for Mayor White, he could easily attack this and just say, Garrity's crazy, um, this doesn't work, here's the evidence for it, but he doesn't do that, though. Exactly. And this is where we get to the undelivered speech. So Mayor White basically writes a draft where he says, I, I ain't doing it. I'm going to shut down South Boston High School rather than integrate it. I'm going to have the city support the most conservative, reactionary, anti-busing group of parents. I'm going to give city support. I'm going to hire counsel to fight this decision all the way to the Supreme Court. I'm going I'm to say this stops here. Yes, we all believe in the goals, but this is not the way to do it. And sure. he ultimately decides, this is his state of the city address. He ultimately decides he's going to toss that speech. He's going to do the right thing. And as you mentioned just a minute ago, in the, in the speech, he says, we just saw a president resign because it's about the rule of law, that this is about the rule of law. And we're going to do the right thing, even if it's uncomfortable. And, and one of the speech writing techniques I talk about in this chapter is litany because he lists all of the uncomfortable truths that everyone has to accept. 
And he kind of throws a bone to everyone. You know, you can accept the truth that you don't like this and this is, this is the wrong way to do it, but we're going to do it. You know, you can accept this truth that you should have the right to walk safely on the streets. Anyway, he lists all these truths and he ultimately does the right thing. And part of why I think Kevin White is such a profile in courage is he does the right thing. It is 80% unpopular. He runs for re-election and he wins. And it's mm-hmm. because it's because he he says, and, and one of my favorite quotes from him, and I put it in the beginning of the chapters, there is no odor save death, worse than that of a public official, too frightened and fearful to say above a whisper what he honestly believes. You you point out how inconclusive busing uh, ended up being. You know, in other words, like on in in political realms today, it's still highly debatable. Again, not what the intention was, but what it tried to do to get to that goal. Um, and I gotta, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna quote a little bit of this chapter just because I think you have some great statistics. Um, you say uh, uh, in 1989, busing ended. Ray Flynn, the anti-busing councilman who is now mayor, teamed up with Boston's first black superintendent and switched the city to a parental choice pupil assignment plan. Um, you go on in that same page, um, white flight to sub- suburban and parochial schools accelerated. In 1972, 60% of the students in Boston schools were white, 33% black, 5% Hispanic, and 2% Asian. By 1993, 48% of Boston students were black, 23% were Hispanic, 19% white, and 9% were Asian. Put another way, Boston schools had gone from 60% white to 80% minority, ironically making schools more technically segregated. Um, the, de, the de facto uh, form that you mentioned earlier. Um, I just found this incredible because it, it actually reminds me of the, the old physics lesson for, you know, uh, for, e- for every action, there's an equal and an opposite reaction. So Garrity comes out with this, equal reaction is, okay, we're going to bus. The opposite reaction was you had worse segregation than you started out with. Yeah, you have worse segregation and you have worse segregation and the city is really in bad shape because so many parents have left. So you'd lost your tax base too. Um, it was the, the unintended consequences were really quite terrible and took decades and decades to ultimately overcome. And, and I mean, one of the funny things I mentioned in the book is that Boston school board was set up in a way that these were all citywide votes, which meant that the school board was almost entirely white and Irish, as opposed to having board membership from districts, which would have created more diversity, created more direct representation. But Boston finally elected a couple of people of color to their school board. Um, their last name, th- their names were John O'Brien and Jean McGuire. So I don't know yeah, how many Bostonians, <laughs> how, how many Bostonians voted for um, black John O'Brien and black Jean McGuire, um, thinking they were voting for a white Irish person, but they did and that, and that helped. But, but to your larger question, and I really struggle with this, which is, you know, now you go into Southie and it is, High-end condos, increasingly diverse, um, a vibrant community, which it, which it was, which it was not decades earlier, mm-hmm. and and you go into Boston, and Boston is still a little clannish, um, right? If we mentioned Black Mass, you can mention the movie The Town, which is Charlestown, um, you know, mm-hmm. which is which is still kind of uh, its its own community, but you know, were there better, less ideological less top-down ways to, to get at that goal. Uh, when I grew up outside of Boston, in part as a reaction to this decision, there were busing programs to the suburbs, voluntary busing programs, where students of color were brought out to these slightly, these wealthier 
suburban schools. So th there were other solutions that, in retrospect, you know, everyone went to their corners so quickly on this, and, and indeed there was a judge's order, but it raises the question that you've raised, which is, is there room in our conversation to actually think about what is the goal and what is the best way to achieve it, and, and what's the evidence-based way to achieve it? When I think, you know, in the sentence I quoted earlier about the parental choice, you really point out that the solution to this was not telling people what to do. It was giving them the right to do what they'd like to do. So, for example, if you'd like to go to another school in the Boston public schools, go. Right. In other words, the ability to have student choice, um, I think, is the most interesting because that's a market based approach. Right. That's not a good school. People don't go there. Um, versus having, you know, to your point, it's a, a dogmatic kind of regulatory um, uh, push from uh, Arthur Garrity, the judge. And, um, and I, 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 the, the piece you pointed out earlier that I wrote, I, I asked the question, you know, and you said ideological, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a perfect way of thinking about this. You know, it's not what we're trying to get to. It's, that's not often the question. It's how we're going to get there. And if we don't, if we try to augment the market, my fear is that we're going to get just like we did in this case. We didn't get our goal. We got the opposite of our goal because ultimately solutions and decisions weren't going to get us there. So, um, so let's, let's pivot for there because the last one I'd love, to, uh, this is the scariest of your book. Um, it made me feel really blessed to be alive and uh, be an American and say that. Um, is is Kennedy in it, you know with what was going on in Cuba with the Soviets in 1962? Kennedy came into um, this arguing America had been weak on defense during his presidential run. So he comes in as kind of a defense hawk. Um, uh, and what did George? What, what did McGeorge Bundy teach him uh, about the Soviets in Cuba that kind of starts off this big decision for Kennedy? Yeah, exactly. So Kennedy, as you as you note, argued, got elected for being tough on the Soviets, you know, saying we had a missile gap, saying we had to arm up. And now here he is, and he's presented with evidence that the Soviets are, are building nuclear missile sites on the island of Cuba, right, just 90 miles from America's shores. And this presents mm -hmm. an immediate, immediate crisis. And several of his advisors, including McGeorge Bundy, at least initially, are saying, um, are, are saying, we have to take these out, like, right away. Like, you have to give us, like, as soon as the evidence was in hand, they're basically saying, we have to go, we have to authorize an overwhelming number of airstrikes, take out the missiles, you know, reclaim our own safety in our own hemisphere. And, and this is what Kennedy is initially presented with. And you really have to admire Kennedy because he says, hold on, I want to see options. And he divides mm -hmm. his National Security Council into two groups. And this is the first known use of the expressions hawks and doves. These are the war hawks and Picasso doves. Um, it's the group that wants to do airstrikes and the group that wants to look at a different solution, uh, a, a naval blockade. And one of the things Robert Kennedy does, which I think is just another wonderful tool of leadership, is he says, you know, we're going to reconvene. And you're going to present the president, we're going to present the president with our, with these two recommendations. And part of the presentation is going to involve the speech. In other words, we want to see the speech announcing this course of action. In other words, if we can't explain it well, maybe we need to rethink it. So mm -hmm. that's, that's what sets off 
the project of writing the speech announcing these airstrikes on on Cuban on this on the Cuban missile sites without realizing that we learned years later that these weren't sites in construction all of them several of them were already operational and so the idea that we would have launched airstrikes on already operational nuclear missiles could have could have been just a disastrous apocalyptic outcome and i didn't know much about this history until i started researching this chapter but it, it really would have been the end of the world and um and one of the things in the draft speech announcing the airstrikes there's a line in it where basically when speechwriters write speeches and we don't have all the information at our hands we we put in a parenthesis you know new information to come in this case, there's a parenthesis in the, in the draft speech that says, follows a description of first reports of action. And when we think about what does that mean, that parenthetical means we're going to fill that hole with what happens after these airstrikes. Mm -hmm. Who died? Were they successful? But what it doesn't account for is that these already operational missiles could have been counterfired, vaporizing our basic Guantanamo, Southern Florida, basically anything up to Boston and over to Omaha, Nebraska. So you talk about Ted Sorensen, who has the job of writing both these speeches. And he's a really interesting character in this whole saga, because to your, to your point earlier, the, you have the kind of the policy side, the, the chief of staff and, and um, the advisors around Kennedy who are having to play either hawk or dove. And then you have the speechwriter who effectively has to take the arguments of both of those groups and produce the communication in his own mind to the best of his ability for each, um, which is just such an odd exercise. Um, you know, you were talking about three, three uh, speeches that had to be written for Gore, um, but that's not an easy thing to do because we're biased. To your point earlier, you have your own politics even as a speechwriter. Um, how tough is it to, to make great cases for things you don't agree with? It, it's tough. It is tough. And like I said earlier, you can be a lawyer, you can marshal your best arguments. But this is a case where Sorensen denied having written both versions. You know, he said, I, I could never have written the airstrike version. That was unthinkable to me. And one of the things I discover in this book is that he may not have written it end to end, but he certainly had more of a hand in it than he would later admit. And mm -hmm. RFK at some point in this episode says, Look, the stress was so great that it was doing funny things to people's minds. And sure. indeed, I think it was possible for Sorensen to be telling the truth, basically saying, I, I didn't write it. I don't remember writing it and yet having written it. And it is hard. You can argue both sides of a case the best of your ability. But I mentioned James Carville before. At one point, he said his, his motto is, you know, you pay for my head, but I throw in my heart for free. You can always sure. write with your head. But I think the more powerful writing comes when you're willing to throw in your heart for free. And it's just nearly impossible to throw your heart into something that you don't necessarily agree with. Yeah, because as investors, you know, there's things that you're going to be positively predisposed to like. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a thing to learn to have to make the case against something you're biased towards. To your point, in politics, it's your own personal thoughts. It's your heart. Um, but to then make the exact opposite argument, kind of the inversion or the killing of your argument... Um, is not easy to do. And as you point out, the pressure, um, I mean, we're talking about nuclear war with so the Soviet Union. 
So there's intense pressure to come to a right decision. And like you pointed out with Ted, um, even the postmortem's tough because he doesn't even remember working on it. Exactly. Exactly. I, you know, the the the, in- the intensity kind of shows you um, back to Aristotle's uh, you know thinking of the mind. Um, it we're kind of in logic. We're at the outer bounds of of what our mind can really do um, to a fuller degree, aren't we? A- absolutely. And and again, he really in this case he really believed he didn't write it. I in the book I talk about a speech. Um, in support of the Iraq war resolution, which I didn't agree with. I remember sitting down. I remember writing it. I remember where I was. And I went back and looked at that speech. I don't remember writing a word of it. You know, our minds play funny tricks on us. I find it tough in this moment because I try to argue that there is such a thing as objective truth and, and real memories. And yet in my experience writing this book, in my own professional experience, you know, the mind is a funny thing. It, it holds on to ideas. It really lets go of ideas. And, and this is one of the things that makes it harder in this world for us to find, find truth and consensus. So the last thing I kind of want to end on this is obviously you have, uh, you, have you know, the, the speech for the airstrike um, was written but never, never given by Kennedy. What strings, I mean, this is an American president making the case for striking someone that, you know, obviously they knew had potential for nuclear warheads. What strings did Kennedy seek to use in that speech for such a pivotal moment? He did a couple things. One is that he does something that speakers do less often now, which is he simply tried to educate. So this is, this is logic. He basically demonstrated what he explains what the agreements were, what agreements this violates, and basically tries to almost de-emotionalize, right? This is a case where there's so much fear, so much emotion. And so he really turns to a logic argument to try to dredge some of the emotion out of it, basically Mm -hmm. saying that this isn't me being hot-headed. This is the only logical reaction to the series of violations, to the misrepresentations, to, to all of the things that have led to this. So he's really making a logic argument in what could have been, um, in what could have been the, uh, the, the most emotional moment of all. Now, he also does make kind of an emotional, he, he demonstrates an emotional understanding by basically saying we, we couldn't negotiate with a gun to our heads, that this is, the, sure. this is the, the international equivalent of someone putting a gun to our head, and that's not how we're going to do business. Yeah, just interesting to think about. Um, you know, as you pointed out, and it's, it's, I highly recommend for listeners to go to this point in the book, but, um, you know, when, when it's like, this is discovered what, uh, we're talking, you know, 20 to actually 30 years later at a conference where the Russian general pretty much offhand remarks, oh no, we had warheads ready to shoot. And and I think he gives a number to it too, if I remember correctly from your book. Um, it's fun. It's, I mean, truly for JFK, it was a commander, uh, commander in chief moment where the, the decision relied purely on him. Um, and thank God for him making such a great decision. It really did. And, and it is amazing. And there's a moment and the audio book of this book has a lot of fun archival audio, um, including this moment at which General Curtis LeMay, who was very pro airstrike, whose nickname at a time was Bombs Away LeMay, basically says, Mr. President, you're in a pretty bad fix. And Kennedy kind of sardonically chuckles and says, yeah, well, you're in there with me. But in that moment, you know, when your Air Force general basically says, oh, yeah, you you got a problem here. 
You know, it is. It's the president's problem. And, and I learned this working for Biden. All the easy decisions get made before they reach the president's desk. And I think a lot of your clients know this in their own lives. The easy decisions get made before they reach the corner office, or in this case, the Oval Office. And so it really rests on leaders to make wise, enlightened decisions in that moment. There's such good stories in your book, um, you know, multiple that we didn't go into. Um, uh, Edward VIII's possible refusal to abdicate. I just love that chapter, too. That's incredible. That's right. For viewers, of the, for viewers of the crown, you'll like that. Yeah. Exactly. If you're an Anglophile, you're all over that. Um, Mayor Beam having to deal with New York City's bankruptcy. By the way, the mid-70s were a nightmare, and just your book reminded me about how bad the 70s were. Um, and then obviously Hillary Clinton's undelivered 2016 victory speech. Um, so knowing that you know we're not getting everything, and like I said, you got to read uh, Jeff's book. It's just wonderful reading. Um, is there anything that we haven't discussed in the podcast today that y- that you l- you think needs to be mentioned, or or that um, you have to leave listeners with? Yeah, I'll just I'll go to the last chapter because it's different than all the others. It's were it's speeches that people were working on at the time of their death, and I have so unlike. This was like, they, you know, they were sort of halfway. And uh, this is Einstein, FDR, um, also JFK one more time, and Pope Pius XI. And so across time and space and nationality, I found it fascinating that each of them, each of these speeches shared a theme. And it was, how do we live in this world together? How do we live in peace together? For Einstein, it was the Middle East. For FDR, it was looking at the end of World War II. For Pope Pius, it was um, fighting fascism. And for Kennedy, it was actually uh, uh, voices of misinformation and disinformation. And, but the fundamental question was, was how, do we live, how do we live together? And I just found it a sort of powerful and poignant way to, to end the book, um, to say that all of these amazing leaders were asking the same fundamental question. That's awesome. And I really appreciate you coming on today, uh, Jeff. This has been a lot of fun for me. I'm, I'm, I probably need to buy you lunch next time I'm in D.C. because I, <laughs> I could probably go on for hours with you. Um, Jeff's book is an, is an excellent book to develop or reinforce the ability to think about alternate uh, decisions in the unknown future that we must all face in, in everything we do. Um, I, I look at this as a great history read. Uh, back to our points earlier about Aristotle, it's a great uh, read in thinking about logic that we use in arguments. It's a great uh, piece to think about communication in your audience that you're trying to attract. Um, I treasured reading it. This is, as I said earlier, Munger's inversion in practice. Uh, For our listeners, if you have a great book like Jeff's that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeadcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.